Well, what a journey it's been in Romans so far. Uh, we reach a passage today that alludes a straightforward and a simple definition. God is not a God of confusion, you might tell me, and yet God created algebra and God wrote Romans 7. And so I would have to push back against a simplistic understanding of that statement. Indeed, some things demand, don't they, the breadth and depth of our language to truly understand them. If I asked you for a simple and straightforward description of the Grand Canyon, you might say, well, the Grand Canyon is brown, or the Grand Canyon is big, or maybe you might go so far as to say the Grand Canyon is rocky. And all three of those explanations would be very simple. They would be very straightforward, but they would not be very clear, would they? You would not get a clear picture of the Grand Canyon despite the effort at simplicity. Likewise, in chapters 6 and 7 of Romans, Paul has sought out to bring clarity to questions like, is the law spiritually good or spiritually harmful? Questions like, do we have victory over sin or do we still engage in a battle with it? Questions like, does sin become easier or harder to fight as you grow in Christ? And like most of life's fundamental questions, The answers to these questions lie in tension, don't they? They lie somewhere in the middle of the tension between two answers. So as we read last week in verse 4, that we are released from the law to serve the Spirit. As we read last week in verse 6, that we serve the Spirit instead of the law. We might be led to think, ah, okay, I get it now. I'm understanding. This is easy. This is simple. The law is the problem, right? So just once we get rid of the law, we've fixed it. Okay, so leave the law behind, move past the law onto the Spirit, and boom, we solved our issue, right? And Paul is going to correct us this week to say, well, not quite. The poet Emily Dickinson understood a bit of what Paul, I think, is doing in Romans 7, which she describes in her poem, Tell It Slant. She says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. So as we bring this morning what feels like blindness to this passage, as we seek to understand it, let's expect to be dazzled gradually by truth's superb Surprise. So as we get there, read with me verses 7 through 13 as we look together at the law's fatal flaw. Romans 7, verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang up to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. 
Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. So as we look this morning at the law's fatal flaw, the first thing we see is that the law uncovers our sin. One job of the law, one thing the law does very well, is to uncover the sin in our hearts. It does this by defining our sin for us. You heard this in verse 7. Is the law sin? Absolutely not. Paul says, I would not have even known what sin were if not for the law. And he gives the example of coveting. He says, I wouldn't have even known it was wrong to covet if that Tenth Commandment wouldn't have existed that told me not to covet. You see, it's easy for us to see our sin as kind of a personality quirk, right? Or maybe even a feature rather than a bug in our personality and in our selves. So for example, we might say, I'm a hustler, right? I see what I want and I go get it. Well, maybe, or maybe you're just covetous, right? And the law puts a mirror in front of our face to show us whether or not, is this a personality quirk or is there something deeper at work here? You might say, that's just me. I just have a quick temper. Maybe, but you probably just have an anger problem. Well, I just like to keep the peace. Maybe, or do you lie in order to not have to face confrontation? Because the law, as we put the mirror up, would show us that all three of those things are not personality quirks. Right? Those are sinful, but we might not know that were we not to look in the mirror of the law. To hear that lying is sin, to hear that anger is at the root of all kinds of evil. So yes, we all have common grace in us, right? We all have pieces of the law still there, written on our hearts. As much as sin has tried to push them out, we all know basically some version of right and wrong. We all feel guilt over some things and satisfaction and goodness over others. But Paul's talking about in Romans verse 8 especially, Romans 7, we even use that common grace, we even use those pieces of the goodness of the law to try to justify ourselves. They even cause more sin to come about. You hear him say in sin, seizing an opportunity in verse 8 through the commandment. Sin actually uses the law, both in the word and in our hearts, to create more sin. Sin has broken us in such a way that even when we seek to do righteousness apart from God's spirit, we still end up stumbling into more sin. There are many ways this can happen. I'll give you a couple of examples of the law producing sin. Under the auspice of freedom, right? Freedom is a good thing. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom. And yet under the auspice of freedom, we might seek to create new definitions of marriage and sexuality, Saying because we're free, we can, we're free to create definitions of marriage and free to express our sexuality in whatever way we want to. And yet, as we look in the mirror of the law, specifically, for example, Leviticus 18, we're confronted with the reality that that is sinful. Another example, under the auspice of safety, or the Lord is my refuge, right? The Lord is my place of safety. Safety is a good thing. And yet, we can elevate ourselves via ethnocentrism and refuse to have compassion on immigrants and those in need. And the law, as we read it in Deuteronomy 10, for example, puts a mirror to our face and shows us our sin in that situation. So even these desires of freedom and safety, these good things, sin seizes an opportunity, plants a foothold and uses these good desires and exploits them for sinful ends in our hearts, in our minds, in our culture, and in our world. 
So whether it's covetousness or redefining marriage or ethnocentric views, the law helps give us a clear definition of sin. But it goes even deeper than that. It gives us more than just a definition of what sin is. It actually reveals how deep sin goes in our hearts. It doesn't just define sin for us. It shows sin to us. You see, the law doesn't just expose covetousness in general. Paul says it actually exposes how deep the roots of covetousness go in me. You see, of all the commandments, I think he's strategic in picking the 10th one. Because as you read the commandments, most of them we can tweak and turn and try to make them only outward standards, right? Conformity to some external standard. So do not kill. Okay, most of us have gotten that one, right? Do not steal. Well, we might have done once or twice, right? But generally speaking, on an average every day, I can check that one off the list as well, right? Do not commit adultery. Okay, well, again, on an average day, at least, hopefully, right? Um, I can check that one off as well. And yet, Paul doesn't pick any of those. He goes straight to that 10th one because covetousness goes right to the heart. Covetousness is all about what's happening inside, right? It's not just external. It forces, and it forced Paul to do the heart work to show the idols at root in him. To look inside and see what the law was showing, not just about his outward behavior, but his inward transformation. You see, Paul is beginning to read the law like Jesus. So Jesus says, for example, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry, you see what Jesus does? One of the do not murder is to get at our anger problem. With his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus takes the outward conformity and points it back inward. Again, in Matthew 22, verse 36, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus says to him, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you see in those two verses, in those two passages from the Lord Jesus, the point of the law is to get at our desires, is to get at our wants, our hungers, our needs. And that's what Paul is doing with covetousness. He says, as I look at myself and how covetous I am, I realize the law goes deeper. It reveals something deeper about me. Paul wants you to see with him the depth of his need. Paul did not just need a life coach. right? Paul did not just need a couple of counseling sessions to fix his problems. I'm not denigrating any of that, but he recognizes that that is only going to get at some of the surface level issues for him. He needs a deeper solution. He realizes that his heart and desires were twisted in verse 8. His mind was deceived and his spirit was dead in verses 10 and 11. You see, what Paul realizes is that the flaw is not in the law at all. The flaw is in us. Paul says there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is not that God wrote something to give us a mirror to show us ourselves. The problem is what we see in the mirror when we look at it. That's the issue that we need taken care of. See, the law uncovers our sin and it convicts us. It shows us our need for a different kind of help. It shows us our need for a different kind of help. 
it shows us the gap between us and holiness. So you look at verse 9, for example. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again. That's a confusing verse, isn't it? What does he mean he was alive apart from the law? I thought you just said that we weren't alive until we came to know Christ. And to come to know Christ, you have to be convicted of your sin. And to be convicted of your sin, you need the law to tell you what sin is, right? It seems like you're skipping a lot of steps there, Paul. Well, I think all he's saying here is, I thought I was alive. I felt alive. I presumed I was spiritually healthy until the law gave me a mirror to look at myself. I was poking on along as a good and righteous Pharisee, thinking I was checking all the boxes, and I felt alive. But I had no idea of the riot that was going on in my heart. So we've got the men's golf tournament coming up in a couple of weeks, and I am not under any presumption that I am a good golfer. So uh, I can get out there and I could shoot the best round of my life. And what that looks like is like me not losing an entire case of balls, only losing like half of the case, right? Um, and so that's, that's not my, my issue is uh, understanding whether or not I'm a good golfer or not. Uh, the only, like I said, the only trophy I've come close to winning, we do give out one for most lost balls. And that's usually the one that I'm competing for. Um, but some of the guys on the course, right, are pretty decent golfers. I won't name any names because then their egos will just, you know, fill up the room and you'll have to leave. But uh, there are some guys who, they, you know, they, they're pretty decent. They're not too bad. Actually, compared to me, they're very, very good. Um, and during a good round, right, they wouldn't say this out loud, but they might be tempted to think, you know what? I'm not a bad golfer. I'm actually a pretty good golfer. And even on, right, maybe their best day, they might think, you know what? Those PGA guys got nothing on me. I I can wipe that drive out. I nailed it. My putting game was on today. I could probably play on that tour. Well, the number one golfer in the world is, he's actually from Highland Park. His name is Scotty Scheffler. And uh, if we invited Scotty to play in our golf tournament in a couple of weeks, and he played in the group with those stud golfers that we have, Right? I'm, this is actually not a bad idea for promo. Larry, we need to get Scotty to come play in our golf tournament, um, just so I can watch and enjoy. Um, but if we did, right, if he came all of a sudden, right, that ego is shrinking very quickly. Right? As he gets up and he's on the tee, like four tee boxes behind him, right, and, you know, so-and-so, I'm, I'm going to be nice and not name any names, but one of our guys, right, gets up to the tee box and he cranks one of the best drives he ever hit, right? It goes maybe... 200, 225 yards, straight down the fairway. And he, he might be thinking good about himself. And Scotty's like, hey, man, nice drive. He's like, yeah, thanks. I've been working on it for a long time. And Scotty gets down and, you know, with ease, cranks a 300-yarder. It, like, skips onto the green. It rolls up. And he's like, oh, man, I almost had the hole. All of a sudden, all those guys are looking around like, right? We realize very quickly how we stand up to the best in the world. Well, the law does that for us. It gives us a mirror, and lest we think, I'm not all that bad. Oh, really? How's your coveting life going? Ow, right? As we step up to the plate of holiness, we realize how far short we fall. Because in verse 11, we hear, even the law itself is corrupted by sin. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived us, and through it kills us. What's happening here, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, remember what the original temptation for Adam and Eve was? The serpent whispered, you will be like God. You will decide what's right and wrong. 
You will determine for yourself what to do and what not to do. And you will get to decide whether or not that's the right thing to do or not. You see, sin uses the law to make us attempt this illusion, right? Oh, okay, the law tells me what's right and wrong. Maybe I can kind of twist it. And in turn, this creates more sin. Lest we don't understand this, right? Let me give you a very practical way to understand what's going on here. Look at your response to uncertainty. When you face uncertainty, when you face the reality that this illusion of control that you've kind of constructed around your life, once it gets a hole poked in it, what happens? How do we respond? What do we do when that illusion of control and sovereignty in our lives gets one little hole in the paper mache? Look at your response to loss of some small measure of political or medical or cultural or familial control. When one of these things begins to fall apart in your eyes, if you're anything like me, I suspect that it reveals that you are not, in fact, quick to count the interests of others above your own. I suspect it reveals that you are not, in fact, slow to anger and quick to forgive. As a matter of fact, if we're as honest with ourselves as Paul is, we might admit that we kind of like our response, not counting others as significant as ourselves. We kind of delight in the fact that we can withhold forgiveness and instead spew impatience. We kind of like that feeling. Why? Because it gives us back some of that illusion of control that we were chasing in the first place. Because for a brief moment, whether it's in owning our enemies or going back to our favorite substance for comfort, we are back in the driver's seat and we get to tell God what's good for us. It's a deep-seated reality and it's just one that Paul is not naive to. And this brings us to the tension that we find, which is the tension within the spiritual. The tension within the spiritual. And I say spiritual here purposefully. Okay? It's a, I know it's a weird phrase, but there is some question among very smart and very godly people on what Paul is getting at here. Who is he talking about in these next verses that we're going to read? Some commentators say he's talking about himself before he knew Jesus. And some commentators say, well, actually, he's talking about himself after he knew Jesus. The great expositor Martin Lloyd-Jones called this the most controversial section of the Bible, these next 10 verses. That may be an overstatement, but it certainly has caused much consternation and discussion among very faithful, very godly Bible commentators. And so I am going to give uh, what I think, and I'm going to explain why briefly, but I want you to know that there's some tension even here in how we read these verses. But let's read them together, and then I'll give you a few brief reasons why I think the way that I do. Starting in verse 14 of Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand why I am do, what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin is living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one who does it. It is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. 
For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Let me give you four brief reasons why I think it's likely and most likely that Paul is giving us at least a semi-autobiographical account of him as he's experiencing conversion and him after his conversion. So I think this is believing Paul, okay? Let me tell you why. First, there's a change in verb tense from what we just read in 7 through 13 to 14 through 24. So you hear in verse 8, he's using the past tense. This is easy to see. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced ED, right? This is easy in English to see. That ED means produced, used to, right? It did. And yet, you hear the transition starting in verse 14, where he starts using words, I am, I do not. This is reflective of what's happening in the Greek as well. He says, I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. I do not understand currently what I am doing. Not only is there a change in verb tense, though, there's also a change in situation. So you hear in verse 11, where he says, sin deceived, past tense, and it killed me. Because I was dead. There's a difference, isn't there, between death and war. Right? You are fighting in a war actively. Right? You can't fight in a war after you've already passed away. And the image of fighting is the one that Paul then transitions to beginning in this passage. You can hear it in verse 23. I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind. There is no war happening in that first part of the passage. There's death, deception, and then the image transitions to war and fight and battle. Also in verse 22, thirdly, he says, in his inner self, he delights in God's law. So the most inner part of my being, and I will argue that was, that's his true self, right? His redeemed self, the part of his self that's united to Christ. My inner self, I delight in God's law. Well, unbelievers don't delight in God's law, and certainly not in their inner selves. As a matter of fact, next week we'll see in chapter 8, verse 7, well, I'll just read it for you. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot or is unable to do so. So for Paul to say, my inner self delights in God's law, indicates to me that he is talking from the perspective of a believer, a spiritual person, someone who is awakened to the realities of the goodness of Jesus. And then finally, he is aware of his lostness. Unbelievers, and even, quite frankly, new believers, tend to miss the reality and the depth of what Paul is acknowledging in this passage, which is the depth of his sin. And oftentimes, as as we first trust Christ, it's easy to, oh, my sin's been washed away, right? Boom. All right, roses and daisies ahead, right? Paul is showing a mature faith and being able to see past the initial shininess of it all, being able to see the the nitty-gritty of what's going on in his heart and in his Christian life. But this immediately brings up some hard questions. All right, so that I am not under the illusion that my interpretation just now has uh, removes all of the tension that Emily Dickinson told us about earlier in the sermon. So what about Romans 6? Look at Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. It's not been that long since we were here. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. And then verse 7, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Okay, a person who's died is freed from sin. And yet, Paul, you just said you are still enslaved to sin. You either contradicted yourself or Pastor Brandon is wrong and teaching heresy. One or the other, right? Well, let me give you a third option. Do you remember Miss Dickinson's encouragement to tell the truth, but tell it slant? Right? Tell the truth, but get there in a way that's a bit meandering. Why? Well, not just to make the sermon longer, although some of you might be tempted to think so. But instead, because that's where we're going to see the tension of the deeper truth. Right? There are easy theological systematic answers to these questions, yes. But as we stay in the tension for a bit, I think we'll be dazzled by what we see. You see, Paul is helping us, even in this passage, live in the tension of what is really happening, both in the world that we see and in our souls that we experience. You see, if he just gave us easy answers of Romans 6 and skipped the tension of Romans 7, we might be tempted to think exactly that, Right? I've been freed from sin. I shouldn't experience sin in any way, shape, or form anymore. Christ has freed me. Are we free from sin? Yes. No. (laughs) Right? Yes, indeed. Romans 6 says we are freed from sin. But so often we don't feel free from sin, do we? In our day-to-day experience, we know theologically that God has freed us from sin. And yet, on an average Tuesday, if I asked your inner being, your inner self, do you feel free from sin and its effects today? I expect many Tuesdays, if you were honest, you would tell me no. And what an encouragement it is that the Apostle Paul felt that too. He is acknowledging the reality that you and I live with. Sin has no dominion over me. And yet, on so many days, it feels like it has so much power over me. The burden of sin weighs heavy on my shoulders and on your shoulders. You see, I don't even think the believer-unbeliever question is really the most important question here. Because I think this passage is from the perspective of someone trying to keep the law in his or her own strength. Romans 7 is what happens to us if we set out as redeemed people, as people who are spiritual, who the Holy Spirit is awakening those new realities and new desires in our hearts, and we say, I want that, so I'm going to do that. And we completely bypass the work of the Spirit in our lives, completely bypass dependence upon grace and mercy of Jesus, and instead think we're going to hold ourselves, and then what ends up happening is also other people Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't exist, now I'm the Holy Spirit for everybody else too, right? So if he doesn't exist in my heart, apparently he doesn't exist in everybody else's. So I condemn myself, and eventually I get tired of doing that, and so I begin to condemn others. Romans 7 is a vivid picture of what happens as we begin to try to fight for our sanctification apart from the supernatural work of the Lord. So yes, perhaps this is the picture of a Jewish unbeliever. Perhaps this is a picture of Paul who knew the law and apart from the work of the Spirit was going to love the law so much that he was going to kill Christians on its behalf. I suspect not, but maybe, right? But at the end of the day, that's the same thing. 
It's someone seeking to love God's law apart from God's spirit. There are parallels here even, right, to someone who grew up in church but never experienced true salvation. Yes, absolutely. This could be the mind of an unbeliever, but I think we miss the power of this passage when we fail to acknowledge the reality that even if that is the mind of an unbeliever, it so often is also the mind of a believer. So often we fall back into that same temptation over and over again. How often do we abandon grace, abandon the Spirit, relegating them to our moment of conversion? Yes, Jesus saved me by grace, so now it's my turn to get to work. Hallelujah for grace back then. It's too bad I can't have it now. Thank goodness Jesus has that grace for me, but man, he sure doesn't have it for my next door neighbor. This is the perspective that we so often, we wouldn't say it like that, right? Because we probably have our theology at least better in our minds. And yet, how often do we live it like that? You say, yes, I went through that infatuation with Jesus thing. That's very cute. I love seeing people get baptized because they're in that stage of loving Jesus, loving grace, depending on the Spirit, not really knowing how to walk through life. But now I've moved on to the real stuff. I've moved on from that Jesus stuff, and now I'm into deep theology or fighting the culture wars or the latest justice cause or becoming the right kind of biblical man or biblical woman. And Paul is reminding us that heaping these new laws on ourselves without a Christ-fueled and Spirit-filled approach will only lead us to roads of despair. That while some of these ends might be good ends, they are not the ultimate ends. And they cannot be accomplished apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. This is clearly not, Romans 7, I should say, is clearly not, as we'll see over the next few weeks, the ideal approach of sanctification for the Christian. And yet, by a show of hands, how many of you live in an ideal world all of the time? Yeah, I didn't think so. So no, this is not an ideal description of how we pursue Christ, and yet it is an apt description of how often we're tempted to pursue Christ. Between the theology of Romans 6 and the practical exhortation of Romans 8, Paul gives us a vivid account of the Romans 7 experience. And in this Romans 7 experience, we hear some very exciting things. So we get a little prequel to what's coming next week. In verse 15, I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. You hear some good news in that verse, actually, which is what? Well, he wants to do good. Right? The, the gospel has transformed his heart in such a way that he has new loves, new desires, new hopes, new affections. And yet, those old ones are still crying out for attention and for affection. So he has this new tension in his heart and in his mind. You hear him describe it as the sin that lives within me. And these new wants and these old wants competing within us Demand a question. This is the question that plagues many a Christian. Right? Whether they're, uh, maybe it happens quickly as a new Christian, they immediately start succumbing to old temptations and ask this question. Maybe the honeymoon period lasts, right? Or maybe you've been a Christian for 40 years and all of a sudden some, your version of covetousness comes up and you're like, man, I didn't even know that was there. I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years. Wait, have I been walking with Jesus for 30 years? Could that have been there for 30? And I didn't even know it until now. This is a rocking question that many of us, like Paul, get hit with the right hook by and don't know how to recover. 
You see, we are not unlike the Israelites when they left Egypt. And they're out of Egypt, right? So to be clear, their actual status, their physical place, where they actually are, is on the way to the promised land. They are no longer slaves. But Romans 6 is true, at least physically, of them, right? They are free. Pharaoh is not their ruler. But listen to them. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. I love this. Right? God has supernaturally provided manna. So they've like asked for food. They're like, we're hungry. And bread has literally fallen from the sky or emerged from the ground, however you read the passage, whatever. Bread is like miraculously appearing. And what do they do? Huh, cool. You guys remember when we had meat in Egypt? Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt. It was free. I mean, granted, we had to work like 16-hour days hauling bricks, but it was free. You remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic? Oh, man, we had the Golden Corral buffet in Egypt. We just sat around and... You remember the Egyptians kind of fed us grapes. You remember that? That what happened? They probably didn't even... They, probably, they may have gotten a melon once a year, maybe, right? But now our appetite is gone. Oh, I'm so tired of the supernatural provision that magically shows up on the ground every morning when I wake up and has for the last two weeks. How boring. You see, they have been decisively and powerfully rescued out of Egypt. They have walked through dry ground on the Red Sea. Their location has changed. They are no longer in Egypt, and yet Egypt is still in them. Their status has changed. For freedom, they have been set free. They have been liberated from their captive. And yet, as they look at all of God's work around them, all they can think about is the leeks and the melons and the meat. And likewise, we have a similarly confounding experience. Which of these is my real self? The one that complains that I don't have meat or the one that takes joy from the manna and the deliverance from the Red Sea? Which one is real? Who am I, really? Am I still a slave or am I actually free? And as I counsel with people who often stumble or fall in these situations, you do begin to wonder, does that mean that it wasn't real? Does my stumbling invalidate my freedom? Does my crying out for meat then mean I get magically transported back into Egypt? Well, we get a picture of the answer for the Israelites. Did God teleport them back to Egypt to give them the melons and meat that they had so craved? Well, no. They kept journeying toward the promised land. You see, John Piper says very effectively, for the believer... When we are converted, warfare is made possible, not past. You see, Romans 7 is made possible for the believer. It's possible to fight your sin, but sin does not get put behind you until the day that Christ returns. You hear in verse 22, in my inner self, I delight in God's law. You see, for the Christian, your inner self, your true self is redeemed. Your true self delights in God's law. This is what you really want. Warfare is now possible. You see, this tension that Paul has experienced is part of evidence, actually, of Christ working in you. 
You think it's evidence that Christ is not working in you because you're struggling with sin, right? This is how we normally think. Oh, I'm really wrestling with sin. I'm having trouble putting it away. Well, the fact that you just said putting it away, the fact that that's your deepest desire is to see it gone, that is evidence that Jesus is working in your heart and in your mind. There's a great comfort even as we push back against the darkness that in our pushing, Christ is working. You see, progress in the Christian life is seeing more of your sin, not less of your sin. I love this verse from the book of Proverbs. I don't know if I have it up here. Nope, that's okay, though. I'll read it to you. Uh, Proverbs 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter each hour you live. And you see, that brightness does illuminate the way for others. People do see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But you know another effect that that brightness has? It begins to uncover and expose shadows that you didn't see yesterday until the LED bulb went up a few notches. All of a sudden you start seeing, have you ever done this where you change a light bulb in a room and you're like, man, the cobwebs, right? You don't see it until the light gets brighter. So too, as your sanctification happens, more and more sin begins to be uncovered. Sin that you didn't see before. Sin that didn't break your heart two years ago. But the fact that it's breaking your heart means your inner self is winning the victory. More aptly, as we'll see next week, it means the Spirit is winning the victory within your inner self. You see, a wounded bear is temporarily more dangerous than a hibernating bear or a healthy and happy bear. Christ has mortally wounded your sin. He has stabbed it in the heart. And yet, he has awakened the bear that until now was just hibernating within you. And as that bear begins to fight back, you look around like, whoa, I I didn't even have to deal with that a minute ago. Yeah, because it wasn't stabbed and bleeding out a minute ago. As you push back against your sin, you will experience the fight of sin against you. And this is normal Christian experience. We need to be very clear here, right? Wrestling with sin is normal Christian experience. We can be transparent about this with one another. Someone who is experiencing spiritual awakening might even have this experience. How many of you, the moments that you began to be awakened to your sin, do you remember just before you trusted Christ maybe? Remember the longings that were going on in your soul, the the twistings and turnings that were happening, you probably said something similar to what Paul does here. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And whether you are experiencing this for the first time or the 10,000th time, my friend, you do not have to stay in Romans 7. Praise God, there are nine more chapters in the book of Romans. You see, this kind of tension... And this kind of failure even is normal for the Christian, but it is neither ideal nor is it inevitable. Who will rescue us in our hunger to follow our new self? Who will rescue us in our desire to follow new desires? Verse 25 rings out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same one who rescued us in salvation and in justification will rescue us in our sanctification. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. My friend, the law is good, but it will not rescue you, and neither will any of its cousins. Your vision of the biblical family will not rescue you. Reaching financial stability will not rescue you. 
Your favorite politician will not rescue you. Being adequately concerned about social justice issues or being adequately concerned about those who are concerned about social justice issues will not rescue you. Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised and is seated at the right hand of God and he can rescue you. The man who was God, who felt the tension of sin and temptation and never fell into slavery. We've seen how he became sin in order to give us righteousness in chapter 3. We've seen how he became a new Adam, lifting the curse of sin from our shoulders in chapter 5. And now in this tension in Romans 6 and 7, it sets us up for the melody and the harmony to meet. It sets us up for truth's superb surprise. It sets us up for the promise of the Spirit. You see, we do not have to approach our battle with a Romans 7 reality. You notice what Paul didn't mention at all in verses 14 through 24? Something he's going to make up for next chapter, which is the work of the Spirit. He hasn't mentioned it yet, because this is what it looks like if you try to do this without it. You see, but we don't have to do it without it. We don't have to stay in Romans 7. As a matter of fact, Moses the writer and mediator of the first law in many ways, longed for the day that we now look at. You hear it in Numbers 11, same chapter that we read earlier, but a little later on, a young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses, since his youth responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. They're showing you up. You're supposed to be the one with the Holy Spirit. What are they doing? But Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. And a lightning bolt flashes for us to get a glimpse of next week as we read Romans 8, 2. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have the spirit, brothers and sisters. You see, our justification, our external righteousness goes deeper than the law. Our sanctification, our internal righteousness goes deeper than the law. And all roads lead us back to Jesus. He gives us freedom from sin and he gives us freedom from our constant crisis over our sin. So if you have been under the impression this morning that you were spiritually alive, but God has recently been awakening you to the reality that you need a salvation that goes much deeper than you were expecting, We would love to pray with you. We would love to help you take your next step in following Jesus. We'll have elders in the back who can counsel with you on how to do that. If you feel like Paul and you're constantly at war, not just with sin, but with yourself, you're constantly punching at air and wondering, who will deliver me from this? My friend, may the communion that we're about to take in just a moment deepen your confidence in these two realities. First of all, that you are not alone that you were taking it together with a bunch of believers who are just like you and just like Paul, wrestling with sin, but you're also taking it with the real presence of Christ here moving among us in the power of his spirit. And may you also know that Jesus is mighty and able to save. Be reminded as you drink of his blood, as you take of his flesh, the same flesh and blood that was poured out on the cross is now applied to you by the work of his spirit as you are trusting in Christ, as you are placing your faith in him. May this be a reminder for you and may you experience it in a fresh way this morning. 
As always, if you need to speak with someone, there will be people in the back to speak with. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll take some time. Our church can go ahead and begin uh, gathering the elements as, as I'm praying, and we'll pass those out and take the supper together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for... Thank you for opening our eyes to the reality this morning, Lord, that in our failure, Lord, in our stumbling, in our walking along the way imperfectly, that you, in your spirit, Lord, are working through us and in us. Lord, thank you for the comfort that we are not alone, that even the Apostle Paul himself knew what it was to feel the tension that so many of us bring each day to the day. As we look out, at the world as we look inward to ourselves and we would love for the world to be more just. We would love for our own hearts to be more righteous. And yet all we see is sin and death and darkness. But Lord, thank you for the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, that the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. I ask that those this morning who are held captive by the spirit of sin, and even held captive by sin using the law in their hearts would be freed by the good news of Jesus, the better word of Jesus that speaks a word of freedom this morning. Lord, I pray for the one who is coming here today discouraged, frustrated in their battle with sin, and the sin's effects in their lives and in their family. Lord, I ask that you will continue to bring encouragement through the better word of Christ this morning. That that is precisely what your blood was poured out for, what your flesh was broken for. And Lord, as we get a taste, even this morning, of what's coming, when you will put sin away once for all, when we will dine around your table, Lord, eating your food that you have provided for us, we look forward to the day when sin will be no more. But until then, may we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.